Welcome back to Supreme Myths. Um, today, my very special guest and old friend, uh, Blake Morant, is here. Blake is the Robert Kramer Research Professor of Law at George Washington uh, Law School. Before that, of course, he was dean at George Washington. He was dean at Wake Forest. Uh, he's taught at numerous law school. He's a widely recognized scholar in contracts, which we're not going to talk about today. So if you're tuning in for that, I'm sorry, you'll be disappointed. Uh, media law, which we are going to talk about, I think, at the end. But mostly we're going to talk about legal education. Blake, thanks so much for being here. Oh, Eric, it's my pleasure to be here. And thank you so much for inviting me. I should have also mentioned, of course, you were the past president of WALS. Uh, all kinds of connections. My brand new, literally brand new, Dean LaVonda Reed um, wants me to say hello. She um, she credits you with a lot of her success. Well, she's she's being very generous. She is a star in her own right, and I am thrilled that she has come to the wonderful, wonderful community, which is Georgia State. I'm just sorry I couldn't be there too. Well, thank you, and we're very excited to have her. Before we start, um, I haven't done I've done 34 of these. I think this is the first time I'm starting this way. I want to tell people how we met, and you may not even remember how we met. <laughs> I do. I, I have never forgotten how we met, and I talk about it all the time, all the time. Oh. I was hired by GSU Law in 1991, which is, you know, a zillion years ago. <laughs> for some reason, in 92 or maybe 93, I was on the recruitment committee, which I thought was weird for an untenured brand new law professor, but I was. And, you know, those were the days when we went to that horrible hotel in Washington, D.C. Uh, and uh, and you interviewed with us. And right. I, I've been interviewing ever since. I've been in recruitment virtually every year since since 1990. Was it, was it a two or three? I'm sorry, I don't remember. Yeah, it, was, it was 1991. Or 19, because I, I became a professor in 92. So it had to be in 91. Fall of 91. Or, 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 spring, or spring semester of 92. Yeah, it was a long time ago, yeah. but but you walked into our interview room and we had our 27 minutes or whatever it was back then, you know, you walked out and all three of us in the room said, first of all, we have to hire that guy. Second of all, he's going to be dean of law school someday. Third of all, he's unbelievable. And we tried to hire you and we gave you an offer. Um, and our dean, who worked very hard, not her fault, not your, no one's fault, exactly. gave you a much better offer, which we could not match. And I've regretted that ever since. Oh, um, well, I got... <laughs> that, that conversation happened. That guy's going to be dean of the law school. That's what oh, we said. Oh, my goodness. I wish you had told me that when I was in the room. <laughs> I could have run out of the room. So, uh, I, I've got to say, and I say this to students all the time, so often the way people are perceived and the way that they behave is uh, uh, really sort of symptomatic of the people that they're engaged with. I just thought the people at Georgia State were and still are some of the greatest individuals that you could ever work with. And I left that room and I am and, and you could talk to my wife Paulette about this. I left that room and I went home and I said, we're moving to Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, one of the things that I also recognize my grandfather was a minister for 68 years. And my granddad said this to me when I graduated from law school. He said Son, if you want to make God laugh, make plans. Yeah. <laughs> it was. I had planned to go to Atlanta. And all of a sudden, this other thing intervened. But the beauty of the academy is that even though we have over 208 law schools uh, approved by the ABA, we are all an academy. And you get to know all of these people. And so I felt connected to Georgia State ever since I had that first meeting. And hopefully one day, Somebody will invite me down there to either teach or visit. I would love that opportunity. I will make that happen. Then you've offered. Hint, hint. I accept. Offer. You're the, you're the contracts guy, right? Offer, acceptance. I will pay you something. That's consideration. What more is left? Are we done? I love it. I love it. And you said you were going to talk contracts. Here we go. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. Let's, let's, uh, anyway, it's great to see you. And let's, let's get a little serious. Now. Um, so I don't think anyone really in this country is more of an expert on legal education than you are. You've written about it, you've done it, you've done it as a professor, as a dean, as president of WALS, you've done everything. So, so my first question to you, what's good about it? What's bad about it? What needs to be changed? Okay, 
That's a that's a very big question. Uh, and and I, I could spend the rest of our time here talking about that, and I won't do that because there's so many wonderful things for us to talk about. Let me just sort of synopsize an answer that basically pinpoints a number of different points that are very salient with this. The first one has to do with, and, I, and, and I've said this before, why should legal education matter? And why should it be fostered? And if you look at what's happening today, both politically and economically and globally, everybody talks about STEM and all of these variety of different things that are necessary in order for individuals who are coming out of school to really have a handle on to get jobs. What people are not talking about is, yeah, we, we need those people, but in a globalized world, which is more interconnected than it ever has been, and with a market that morphs continuously, you need to have professionals who are able to problem solve creatively, to mm -hmm. think critically, to be mm -hmm. able to work with a variety of different people in order to come up with novel solutions. <clears throat> Pardon me. You need that. That's what legal education trains people to do. We train individuals to think creative, creatively, critically, to think about a variety of different situations and how those situations basically apply to sort of standard formalistic rules that seem to be elastic and how those rules may have to be changed as a result of all of these various changes that go on in society. We train people to do that. And I don't care how mechanized we become. I don't care how dependent we are on the more empirical professions that are out there. There is always going to be a need, as there has been for over 600 years, for individuals with that talent. So now that society is changing and interconnected, and that as a result of that, you have all of this globalism and all of this diversity come into play. We need individuals with the kind of training that the legal academy does in order to navigate that particular thing. So that that's my first. Hold on, hold on. Let me, let me just ask you one question about that before we get to your second, sure, because sure, it's so sure. relevant that I think you'll find this interesting. I've been recruiting again this year for Georgia State, okay. and we had a bunch of you know dozens of interviews now. Great people, wonderful people. Sure. Blake, we ask all of them, what do you want students to get out of your teaching besides? The black letter law. Every single person has asked that question. I've been asking that question for 30 years. Okay. This is the first time ever in that 30 year, my experience, where almost nobody mentions critical thinking. In fact, out of every interview we've done, only one person, and this person may is, is in good standing right now, um, <laughs> mentioned critical thinking. No one else does. What sure, changed? Sure. Why is this happening? So one of it has to do, and that's a that's a wonderful observation to get to some of the issues that we have in legal education. And some of those issues are really tied to the model of what we have that's been relatively static, really. And that static model has really led to law schools really being very sort of monolithic in terms of what they look for in terms of people coming in and joining faculties. And, and quite frankly, we have created a model which is really based on Christopher Columbus Langdell from Harvard, that, which is interesting because he was one of the ones who said, you gotta do this critical thinking kind of thing in order to train great lawyers who are going in. But what gets lost in all of that is this idea that you bring in smart people, you kind of exercise things in a way that sort of suggests that they have to think on their own, but we never talk about the pedagogy in such a way as to ensure those kinds of outcomes. Now, I, I have to, there's so many points that sort of go into this, and, and one of those has to do with the ABA changing its standards to make sure that we're giving more in terms right. of what outcomes we're giving students. And I think the good part about that is it makes us talk about what do we want these students to have when they leave here? And critical thinking has got to be an element of that. The people coming in the door that you're interviewing are usually, and I don't want to generalize, they're not told these are the kinds of things when you're talking about pedagogy, you should keep in mind. Because so much of the hiring is built on what's the scholarly potential of these individuals. And I am not saying that that's not important because we need to have people who are going to do that. 
But today, in a consumer-driven market that we're in, where legal education is more expensive than it's ever been before, you need to marry with that the understanding that in addition to contributing to the overall colloquy that we have in our profession, we recognize that we have to give the individuals coming in who are paying lots of money the skills that they're gonna need to navigate this complex market. So we've gotta, we, we've gotta emphasize that on our hiring scale so that people get that as an essential part of becoming a law professor. How much of that do you think is uh, the, VAT, the visiting assistant, whatever it is, associate professor programs at elite places like Yale and Harvard yeah, and NYU yeah. and Columbia, where they're literally factories for law professors. Now, by the way, I wanna say, We've had great candidates, and I'm not, I want to make sure everybody understands because they're watching this. We, we've liked everybody we've seen. I've just been surprised by the difference in the answers because the answer used to be critical thinking 20 years ago. Yeah. So it doesn't seem like that's the answer. But anyway, how much do you think the VAT programs are at work here? It's hard to say. I don't have any empirical knowledge to really sort of value that. What I can say is that law schools that are hiring people are hiring them based on A, are they going to be great scholars? B, are they going to, boost our reputational sort of bang, part of that is gonna be by the kinds of scholarship that they produce and where they produce it. The other part is where they come from. And see, here's another part of that puzzle, because if you were to do a study, most of the individuals who haven't practiced that much or haven't done that much outside of the academic sphere are not gonna think that much about the critical thinking as much as the individuals who've been out there a little bit and then come into the profession. That's what I was. And quite frankly, our academy doesn't look that well on those kinds of people. And that's gotta change to a certain extent. We've got to be realistic about that so that we can send signals that here, the scholarship is important. We want people to be engaged scholars and recognize scholars and all of those kinds of things. But we're smart people that can do a variety of different things. And at the end of the day, we are teachers. And we've got to emphasize those points in order to make sure that happens. So let me throw something at, at you, which I can do because we have such long friends. And, and, and it might be a, a tad controversial, but I haven't shied away from that. Oh, and neither yeah, of you. interest so. in this, right? <laughs> so I wrote a piece along with a guy named Adam Feldman, people who follow my podcast know this, uh, called The Elite Teaching the Elite. Um, and Adam was the data guy. And what we found out was in 2019, 94.8%, 95% of professors at the top 10 U.S. news ranked law schools came from a U.S. news top 10 ranked law school, 50% from Harvard and Yale. Yeah. And then when you go to the top 25 schools, it's still 80% plus. Right. So what I want to ask you is, as long as that's true, as long as legal education refuses to leave the top 10 ranked schools and especially Harvard and Yale, I don't see this, I don't see the elite schools changing when it comes to hiring excellent lawyers who will be great teachers and good scholars. They want great scholars and teaching well, maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, so can I give you a little piece of good news? In, yes, in please. The midst of that? <laughs> right, right. I'm not gonna disagree with you. You're absolutely right. And that is the dominant paradigm right now. There's no question about it. If you talk to anybody who is trying to come into the market and they've been counseled, they're gonna hear all of those things. And quite frankly, it's discouraging to the individuals who are not at those quote unquote, more national schools. I call them more national rather than elite and non-elite, the more national schools. Let me explain that, Blake. I was talking about from a class perspective too, because it's a huge you. class. I got you, yeah. So, so quite frankly, that is the dominant model and, and we can talk and we don't have enough time to talk about where that comes from. I think at the end of the day, when you're talking about what people use as short-term cues on quality, where people went to school, their pedigrees and all those kinds of things, at least opens the door to them to greater opportunity than individuals who haven't gone to those schools. So that's one. Here's the ray of hope in this. And the ray of hope here is that, and, and I'm not talking about an avalanche of change here, but even the elite schools are feeling the pressure with regard to the what the market wants in going to legal education. 
I will tell you this, Eric, having been dean for over 13 years, and I started right when the Great Recession occurred. Yeah. And that's when app applications went. You remember this? Applications yeah. disappeared, jobs disappeared. And I was a brand new dean when this happened. And, and people were looking at me like deer in headlights. And I, you know, I was just too naive to know, boy, this is really <laughs> bad. You know, I was sitting there going, oh, we're gonna we're gonna conquer this. This is not a really huge problem. We'll just buckle down and do what we need to do. What happened in there? was even the more national schools recognized that employers, when they cut back on employing, they had clients who said, we're no longer going to allow, these are the clients, we're yeah. no longer going to pay for as training for these, little, these new associates. We're not gonna pay for that. You need to figure out a way to have them better trained when they come to us. And so law schools, even the top ones, have had to recognize what can we do to really ensure that not only are we bringing in smart people who are gonna be smart and do all these things, but also how are we gonna have great professionals so that law firms are now seeing, yeah, these are the kind of people that we want. Now, I'm not saying that's a sea change and, and we won't see a huge sea change in this anytime soon, but the, there is a break in the dike on that. And the question then becomes, how do the schools address it? And that's one of my concerns right now, because I think what we're beginning to see are these sort of different tiers of professors. So you have these, these traditional doctrinal with tenure folks and all of that. And then you have these professors of the practice who do all, and the professors right. of practice are the ones who really felt. So that, that's kind of a, an offshoot of that that has its own issues. But the, the good news is that schools, even the national ones recognize they gotta do more to increase the professional skills of these people. I think that's a great point, Blake. I, I wanna make an observation and then ask you a, another question. My observation is, and you're gonna be embarrassed by this, but too bad. Um, <laughs> One of the things that um, came through in 1992, whenever it was, and every time I've met you since, which is a dozen times, you know, um, is, um, and what I'm sure made you a great dean, is you have a inner light and optimism about really hard things without being Pollyannish at all. I'm not suggesting that. That is very contagious. It's rare in legal education, Mike. And it's, in my opinion, after 30 years in this and a number of deans, including, I think, Steve Kamenschein, one of the best deans in the country. One ever. one dean. Yeah. Fabulous. I've, I've, I've seen my deans come and go, and I've seen your ability to be optimistic in a realistic way is one of the, I just admire that so much. I wish I, I wish you could some, give some of that to me. <laughs> You're too kind. If you catch me on some days, that optimism looks a little more specious than it normally is. But so, you know, inside, yeah, can I just say one thing about that? Yeah. You have to believe in what you're doing. Yes. In order to carry a message that says this is worth working for. And I truly do believe that not just not just our society, but globally, we need great legally trained professionals for all the reasons I already said. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, so leaving aside the Great Recession, of which I don't think you had any, you, you didn't cause it, I don't think, and didn't have any control over it. Um, leaving, leaving aside the, the challenges 2008 posed for all law schools and everybody. Yeah. You've been you dean for a long time, two different law schools, uh, Wake Forest and GW, both, you know, private, reasonably yeah. schools. But but um, what was the, without, without, you know, I don't want you to disclose anything you don't want to disclose. Sure, sure. What was your biggest challenge being a dean that you had control, not control over, but internal kind of, not, not what the society did or the economy. What sure. was your biggest challenge? I, I'll look at this holistically in terms of both of the schools where I've been. And it's not just the schools where I've deemed. I mean, it's been schools where I've served as faculty. I think one of the biggest challenges I had was convincing faculty to think differently and to do things differently in order to meet what from an administrative standpoint, you saw as a changing market. And so I, I'll never recall, I, I mean, I'll never forget uh, while I was Dean at Wake Forest. One, and I love Wake Forest, I love that faculty. It was 
a magical time there. Um, but one of the hardest things that you have to do is convince people we need to think differently and do things a little bit differently. And, and, and there were two things that I wanted to do there. One was to start a program in Washington because we were losing so many students because they thought they didn't have opportunities in Washington right. if they came to, to Wake. And the other was to not look at online education as the anathema to quality <laughs> education. You were ahead of your time there. <laughs> I, well, but but I, I'm telling you, Eric, it yeah. was Herculean to really persuade people that we really should look at this seriously as a supplemental way of getting across our product and our brand. And, you know, people are human. One change comes different, uh, change is difficult for a lot of people. The other thing is that when for so long you have a preconceived notion about the quality of a certain way of doing things, it's mm -hmm. hard for you to alter that and think that it's not gonna diminish the quality of what you're doing. And it was an uphill slog all the way. And I've gotta say, it was the same thing at, at GW. I think all law faculty have that fear. Now here's, here's what's interesting. So I, I, I stepped down as Dean in, in June of 19, and lo and behold, in the spring of 2020. <laughs> Good time game. <laughs> ah, you know where I'm going. So, yeah. so we at both schools, I was able to inch the faculty along by saying, oh, we'll do it in graduate programs, but never do it in the JD. That is sacrosanct. You can't do it. That's not quality teaching. You cannot do it. We won't do it. But you can do it in those graduate programs. We can do it in certificate programs, any of those things around the margin, but never the JD. JD is too important to really squander it on something like this. And lo and behold, we have a pandemic and people are forced into doing it. And yeah. I think um, the, the the bottom line to your question is really working with colleagues to get them to understand how change is not anathema to quality, but in a totally morphing market, we have to consider it in order to consider to in order to continue our relevance and and also to really do what we need to do in terms of market uh oh, for sure you prepared both wake and gw much better than other law schools were prepared i don't know about that <laughs> can, I, can i pay a compliment to gw that happened long before you got there but i think you might appreciate and i think is interesting and relevant to what we're talking about okay when, when i was at the federal programs branch at doj uh, Department of Justice from 1987 to 1991. I had a close friend whose name you might recognize. His name was Jeff Gutman. And, oh, yeah. And, and, and Jeff was a great guy. And he's Harvard and Stanford and had all the credentials in the world. And if he wanted to be a scholar, he could be the world's best scholar if he wanted to be. When he went on the job market, well, he didn't go on the job market. What Jeff wanted to do back in 90, whatever it was, that was, was late 90s or sometime, is he wanted to teach. He wanted to be a role model for students. He wanted to give them the instruction it takes to be an excellent lawyer. And he was an excellent lawyer. Yeah. His personal life made him stay in DC. So he went to GW and he said, I don't want to be on tenure track. Don't even ask me to do that. I don't want to do that. I just want to help your students. I know this is unusual. And this is long before legal education was doing this. And they, they and he was so, he's such an impressive guy, as you know, yeah. that, that they said, sure. And they gave him this non-tenure track role that had security, is my understanding, eventually. And I, I, I think Jeff has been phenomenally successful at what he's done. Absolutely. And good for GW to recognize that not everybody has to, there were different roles for different professionals, right? And, 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 and yes, and I, and, and I say hats off to, to GW for that, but there are other institutions that have done it as well. Wake did it. I yeah. mean, we, we had individuals who came forward who were quite competitive for the traditional doctrinal roles, but they saw themselves as being these unique kind of individuals with the experience factor that they had and wanting to come into the academy to make sure the students had the greatest benefit of that. And, and, and I think this sort of marries with the point that I made earlier. I think law schools are gonna have to think more broadly 
about whom they bring in in order to make sure that that quotient is covered for students because the market wants those students to have that exposure. Couldn't agree more. And uh, I think I think the role that GW carved out for Jeff was fantastic. And, and I agree. And he's done he's done brilliantly. Yeah, he's a brilliant guy. He's also really funny. Um, anyway, uh, um, all right. Um, let's move on to a different but very related issue. Um, we're, tape, we're taping this on Wednesday at three o'clock ish, and I don't know when it's going to come out because technology is not it's my thing. But, yeah, three hours ago, I debated Professor Richard Sander of UCLA, who is the leading proponent of the what I think awful mismatch theory in, in legal education, which is that uh, minorities and people of color don't do as well at elite schools as they should, and they shouldn't use. Does the point? I, I, I'm not, I don't want to get into affirmative action. Yeah, yeah. No two people could probably disagree much more on that issue than he and I disagree on it. Right. right. But we had a wonderful hour. It was very collegial. It was not polarizing. We found common ground, and we—I mean—we weren't finding common ground. We disagreed amicably. On this podcast, I've had people on my. Twitter followers who recognize these people, Jonathan Adler and Chris Green and Michael McConnell and known conservatives or libertarians who I disagree with, they disagree with me. But we had good, amicable, amicable disagreements. Sure, sure. I am finding all of, and, and credit to Richard Sander for that, by the way. Um, it's becoming harder and harder. And yeah. especially among classroom discussions, it's becoming harder and harder. And this polarization is really depressing to me. <laughs> it really is. Yes. And, and I'm wondering if you think, A, if law schools can help at all in this thing, and two, are we just doomed? I, I'm asking the optimist here. Are we just doomed for this for the rest of our careers? Well, you know, that that's a tough one. I, I know. Mean, it's, really, it's a really tough one because we, we, we live in a society now where the tenets of civility are not emphasized as much as they were years ago. Yeah. I, mean, I, 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 I think when I, when I talk about this, and I've talked about this with the Illinois Bar, I've talked about it with the ABA, and, and, and a lot of the stuff that I talk about um, sort of always harkens back to the idea that if you want to persuade people, you've got to indicate that you respect the positions that they come from and that you address them and engage them in a respectful way. And so somehow, a very short answer to your question, somehow we as counselors of law, I mean, you know, basically speaking, five, 600 years ago when Thomas More decided to become a lawyer, one of the things that really drove him to do this well, there were two. Number one was his belief in the fact that for individuals who were going to be legally trained or become lawyers, they were rare commodities. And there was a obligation, an obligation on the part of those individuals because of their special talents to figure out a way to give back to society more and what they can do. The other part was that law has always had this interesting nexus with ecclesiastical sort of teachings and, and, and premises and all of these other kinds of things. And that the rules of engagement were the type where you could disagree, but at the end of the day, you're both these professionals who have to have respect for, this, for, the, for the proposition that you're both pres, uh, respected professionals that have points of view that should be listened to in a respectful way. I, think years ago that was understood and that when people violated those particular tenets, it was immediately seen as something that was anathema to what you should be as a, as a professional. Somehow in the last, I'd say, 15, 20 years, as the political polarization of the country has gone forward, somehow behavior that is not civil has been seen as something as a strength, as a conviction. That's as awful. One where someone is so wedded to what they're doing that they're willing to burn down the building in order to do it. Somehow we have to realign our thinking about what is effective persuasion and how do we have engagement so that individuals are listening to each other and actually respecting one another. And I think the only way to do that 
is to go back to our founding principles. I mean, if we're going to be counselors of law, we set an example for the society as to how we argue and how we go about it. Lawyers are supposed to disagree with one another. That's the whole, that gets into the critical thinking stuff, right? This right. idea that you have an idea, I have an idea, we don't agree. We put our ideas out on the table. We listen to one another. We don't interrupt. We don't call each other names just because we have disagreed. Lawyers have done that for centuries, but we haven't emphasized that as a pedagogical item that needs to be salient when we're talking about how lawyers behave and how professionals behave. And so I'm one of the, and I'm, I'm trying to work on this book and I've, I've just been torn in so many different directions, but this book is about civility and why it's important in terms of if we're going to have people to get things done, to, to agree to disagree, to compromise, all of those kinds of things comes from a buy-in to basic concepts of how we engage one another. And law schools need to emphasize that to our students so that they will understand that principle. That was beautifully said. Um, I have one more question slash comment about legal education, and then we'll talk a little law. <laughs> yeah, we all, yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> no, no. So you and I have agreed on every syllable so far, I think. Now we're probably going to disagree, but it's going to be amicable. Um, yeah. So you did something that I didn't think was possible a few years ago. You convinced me, um, and you did it you were a little heavy-handed about it, but it was fair, uh, to come to WLS and do a panel, which I did on, on affirmative. WLS, for those listening or not law professors, is the annual big lawyers, law professor conference, excuse me. And I used to go all the time as a young law professor. And then I literally boycotted it for a very long time. Um, and the reason, uh, personal boycott. And the reason, and I've had other people like Erwin Sherwinsky and others, you know, urge me to come and I'm no, I'm not doing that. You did get me to go because that's how persuasive you are and how much I respect you. But you're the only one in the last 20 years who's gotten me to do that. Um, but, but Blake, here's my question along those lines. The reason I didn't go is because I found those conferences to be more rallies than conferences. Um, where there, there'd be a conservative here and there, but mm -hmm. more, and my panel was equally divided. It was affirmative action. Ilya Soman was there. Uh, yeah. There was a woman there who was very conservative and two liberals. Um, I don't do anything that's not balanced. I just in that in that vein. Right. But you think WLS has a liberal problem? Because I think it does. Okay. The the reason you think it does is because it appears that all of the programming of the programming that you see seems to always suggest that same type of ideology. Yeah. And, and I will tell you, um, I was president of the association in 2015, and we had a group of professors who came to me, and these professors were self-identified as being conservative. Yeah, Randy and, Barnett was one of them, I'm pretty sure. He was. He, he yeah. was. I wasn't going to name names. <laughs> he, yeah, I think he's talked about it publicly on Twitter and stuff. Okay. Okay. So I'm not going to name names. He was one of them. Now yeah. that name is out there. But he was joined by several others. Yeah. And, and they came to me and the thing that they said was, we feel that the AALS programming is tilted more to one side ideologically than the than another and this is supposed to be a learned society where everybody has an equal voice and so forth and so on and so we're bringing this to your table and hopefully you'll give us an opportunity to, to talk with the executive committee so that we can have some conversations about this let let me just say this to everyone who listens to your program the all seven of them go ahead <laughs> <laughs> oh you're so modest it's true i, I gotta say let me say this, the AALS does not have an ideological litmus test for individuals to participate in any of the programming. What it does is it has a program committee that they ask volunteers to come on to. The people who volunteer, and this is what we told that group that came, none of them had ever come forward to be on the programming committee. And so if you have an issue with the programming, who's talking, all of those, join the program committee, <laughs> board, say your, suggest people who are going to be non-aligned with what you do. They will listen to you. And so when they came to us then, 
we suggested very strongly, please, please, please suggest people that should be on the programming committee. And after that, that period, they would suggest people and they were purposely put there for the reasons that you articulate. So at, at a certain point, individuals who have a complaint about that have to be self-examining to say, have I been rejected in terms right. of being able to put forward my point of view? And I would be shocked if somebody said, well, you know, Blake, I heard what you said and, and I went in and I said, here's something that goes against the grain and WLS said, no, we can't have you. I'd be shocked if that happened. I, th I think that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Um, I, I also think, I don't think I know, <laughs> Okay. And, and at least I don't know. I know in constitutional law and federal courts where I hobnob with everybody, the legal academy is just dominantly progressive. And that's that's a challenge then to have a big three day or four day or five day program be balanced when 80, probably 80 to 90% of con law professors at ABA accredited law schools probably identify as liberal or progressive is my guess. So, so, so that's, that's another interesting thing because when this group of professors came to the executive committee, they brought that out as a point of reference. Now, you know, we're lawyers, right? So when somebody makes a bold-faced statement like that, I just go, well, what are the numbers? Tell me empirically. Well, we don't have numbers, but perceptionally, that's the case. And, I, and, and I'm not going to toy around with this in terms of saying, well, you don't have the numbers, so therefore you're wrong. I'm just saying, at a certain point, it becomes difficult to be able to say, because the academy is dominantly liberal, then everything is going to be skewed in that direction. The thing that I have seen, Eric, and maybe others have seen other things other than that, the people that I know who are progressive are not so rigid that they're not willing to listen to counter arguments. And that to me is the key. If even if you have a dominant number of people who are on, typical, on a particular ideological scale, the question to ask is, are those individuals willing to listen to a counterpoint of view? And if the answer to that is yes, then whether they're dominantly liberal or, or dominantly conservative, there's still a fertile ground to have a very healthy conversation about that. To me, it's not who, who, which side people identify with. It has to do with whether people are willing to listen to counterarguments. That's another great point. Um, I agree 100%. Um, and I, I guess I do want to say in that context, and this is selfish and self-centered on my part, but I want to say it. And uh, I became kind of a different kind of law professor in 2010 with a lot of media stuff and other things. Yeah. And, since the, and I, that was 20 years into my career. And Blake, I have to be honest, since I started having kind of a public face, minimally mm -hmm. public face, the most strident stubborn, obstinate, name-calling, vicious encounters I have had almost always come, and I'm as far left as most people, from my left. Interesting. And, and it's, it's, it's really frustrating for me because I want to say to them, I'm on your side 96% of the way, usually. Sometimes, most of the time, 100% of the way, politically. Yeah. I'm not talking about Supreme Court now. I'm just talking politics and sure. you know, pro-choice, pro-affirmative action, yeah, sure. all that stuff. But, but from my left, I get name-called much worse than I get from my right, which I found to be a very interesting, sobering, and difficult experience. Well, that's interesting. And I don't, wanna, I, you know, I, I don't know your situation, and I, I, you know, I can't comment on that in terms of, of, sure. of that. You're, you're in the better position to do yeah. that. I, I will just I will just say that what you have described sort of augurs back to what we were talking about in terms of, of the rules of engagement. And and when you have to be when you have to reduce to name calling and acrimony, yeah. You 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 have to think of two things. Number one, have you moved away from persuasion to one that's much more of a cathartic appeal in terms of feeling? And this is one of the things that I said, I was invited to give, um, I was on a panel with uh, Dahlia Lithwick. Mm -hmm. I love Dahlia. Yeah, she's, she's amazing. She's you don't have to ask her about this panel that she and I were on. And the other panelist was um, uh, Kelly Carlin, who is the daughter of the late great comedian, George wow. Carlin. Wow. So the yeah. three of us were on a panel. 
Kelly talked about, well, first of all, Dahlia. Dahlia talked about the dangerous speech codes on campus. This whole thing had to do with the quote unquote campus speech phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. And and she her the thesis that she gave for it was this whole idea of, you know, schools are treading on thin ice and what have you by having speech codes on campus. Kelly, who introduced her topic <laughs> by quoting the seven dirty words yes. that her you remember that? that oh, of course. Her, so yes. that's how she entered. And her I'm sorry, for those out there, FCC versus Pacifica Foundation yeah. upheld, upheld, George Carlin's wanted to use seven bad words. They said he couldn't, and that was upheld. Sorry, go ahead. Right, thank you. Thank, thank you for that. And she started with that, and her whole thesis was, we need to do as much as we can to encourage robust conversation on college campuses. That was her thing. And then... Here it is, Blake Moran gets up there. This is not my area, campus speech at all, it's not my area, but my, my criminal law professor who put this together said, either you come here or else, and I, I ended up coming. <laughs> and my whole thing was, we need to inculcate on campuses the importance of civility as a foundational element to any kind of verbal or otherwise engagement. And those were the three of us. During the question and answer period, and this gets to your point about name calling. During the question and answer period, there was a gentleman who was there who was obviously very frustrated. This was this was a month or two before the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. He was very frustrated. And he pointed to me and basically identified me as being the example of someone who has limited his ability to get ahead. This was a working class Caucasian individual in his mid forties. Right. right. And, and every time I tried to address him, he'd interrupt me. Hmm. And when I tried to tell him about the idea of being open to different ideas and to give him examples of how I tried to do that, with the group of conservative professors, he cut me off and, and started calling names. Now, I then said, well, sir, I think at this point, there's no real productivity in us having this engagement in this forum, but I'd be happy to speak with you one-on-one -on -one when this is over so that you've had a chance to really reflect on this in a much more positive way and so forth and so on and blah, 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 blah. End of story. When I was leaving, two gentlemen came up to me and said, D. Morant, we are you you were amazing the way that you kept your composure and you handled this person. And everybody that we were around were just amazed at how you didn't lose your composure and how you showed this guy respect, even though he was disrespectful to you and everything like this. And we just want to praise you for doing that because it was a lesson to us all. And I said, Well, thank you very much. Who are you? And he, <laughs> uh, we're the lawyers for the guy who insulted you. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. So, so, so I, I, I was, I, I say that little vignette with this in mind. If people are only communicating for cathartic reasons, you know, if you start calling names and all that, you're not into persuasion at that point. You're yeah. into this communication for a totally different purpose. And then the, uh, the hearer of this has got to decide, do I want to continue with this or not? Because we're not having an honest exchange. But if we have an understanding at the very beginning, and this is one of the things I said at the, at the uh, free speech or campus speech conference at UVA, if we have an understanding of what civility means before we engage in our conversation, perhaps, and we get people to buy into it, perhaps that could have an effect with regard to people who engage one another. That's a fantastic story. I, I um, a couple of weeks ago- And make sure you ask Dahlia about it, because she was there. <laughs> Dahlia's busy, it's hard to reach her, but, if I, but I'll do my best. Uh, I think she is the most, um, I think she is the most brilliant, you know, popular Supreme Court reporter. I think she's, you know, she's yeah. Um, 
couple of weeks ago, I had Prof. We're almost done here. I'll let you go in a few minutes. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I had Professor Julian Mortensen on here. Um, Julian's in Michigan, and he was a Souter, Justice Souter law clerk. And uh, Justice Souter is my favorite justice of my lifetime. Um, I can see why. My favorite judge. I have to mention Judge Posner once a podcast, so I'm mentioning Judge okay. Posner. <laughs> judge Posner. But 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 besides him, uh, Justice Souter is one of my favorite judges. Um, and the reason is, as far as I can tell, he always carried himself with dignity, with respect for others, in, in a way that some justices I won't name do not, for example. Um, and it was interesting, Blake, because I my my dad lives in a you know. He's 92 and lives in a community of 92-year-olds, et cetera, a retirement community with a former uh, First Circuit judge who knew Justice Souter from like child, like best friends. Wow. And, and I gave a talk about the Supreme Court, and I mentioned Souter was my favorite justice. And this guy, of course, stood up and said he was like that since he was a kid, and it was a big part of his personality Yeah, yeah. to, yeah. to, 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 to just respect other people's views. Yeah. Something I would not— say a lot of justices on the Supreme Court have left and right. right. And, 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 and I think that goes to what you were saying. You know, I, we need more, instead of no more suitors, which is what the conservative call is, we need a lot more suitors. That's my view. I, I, I agree with that. And I think, I think, you know, there used to be this code on the Supreme Court, regardless of what your perceived ideologies are, and yeah. regardless of who appointed you, once you were there, you, you kind of took off those labels and that you became a jurist that really looked at issues in a much more holistic jurisprudential way. And, 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 and I hold hope, I'll say that, I hold hope <laughs> that eventually that will come back to the fore. I don't think that's gonna happen anytime soon, but I, you know, I'm the optimist. I'm, I'm hoping that one day that comes forward. In the meantime, I think that we as educators and, and and I say this in seminars and things like this, before we get into the discussion of ideas that have polarizing implications, we need to understand how we are to engage one another as professionals. And I remind people of that before we get into the discussion so that it is a part of the lexicon along with their own ideas about what they have. I think we need to have more of that. I agree. And I also think, so one of the reasons I think Professor Sander and I had a very civil but robust debate, which is what we want, right? Civil, robust yeah. debate, was when we first met a few weeks ago, I never met him before, I very quickly put out there that I'm not his typical liberal progressive antagonist and that I'm a very much a Supreme Court critic, left and right. I think Roe is wrong, but I'm pro-choice, et cetera, et cetera. I found some common ground first, and that's what I try to do with people I know, I know I'm going to disagree with, so that we can at least, that's a great especially idea. when we're doing it for students, yeah. role model that common groundness. That, that is profound. That is uh, profound. Because what that does, when you identify at the very beginning that there's common ground, at least it shows it is not the strict sort of split between your side and mine. That, right. Yeah, I recognize that you have some great ideas. And, and I don't agree with all of those ideas. Over right, there. Right. there are some that I, and to put that on the table first, so it signals to the other person, I have some respect for you. Hopefully that's going to be reciprocated. Professor Chris Green of Ole, of Ole Miss and I um, did do a, he reviewed my book in Chicago Law Review Online. I responded, I don't think it's possible to disagree more about originalism than Chris and I disagree about it. <laughs> but we laugh and tease each other about it. And why can't that, I mean, like, yeah, it's a good sporting event, you know? Why can't it be good, healthy, fun competition, you know, and, and then you shake hands and go get a meal? Like, why? And well, why well, well, look at our, look, look at our legislature. I mean, yeah. people talk about how historically in the past, people in Congress on opposite ends of the ideological spectrum would disagree when they were on the floors of Congress. And when it was over, they would pull hands, go get a drink, talk, have all kinds of, I mean, look at, at my, my friend, my deceased friend whom, for whom I still mourn, and that's Justice Ginsburg. She had yeah. a wonderful friendship with Antonin Scalia. And when I talk with her about that, the one thing that she talked about is, you know, you need to find some degree of common ground with people 
so that you can engage them in a production. We're going to have to do that if we're ever going to progress. The other thing that goes with what you're saying, Eric, and we haven't talked about this specifically, but it sort of goes into this whole thing of engagement, of persuasion, and also of how democracy works. We have to re-educate people on the value of, of, of compromise. We yes. have to do that. Yes. I mean, we yes. can no longer afford to have people think that it's a zero-sum game whenever they are engaged in any kind of contest. That democracy for hundreds of years has always been nothing but compromise. With at the end of the day, people thinking, God, I don't know if I like what came out, but you know, this yeah. is better than nothing. And and I at least I, I got myself heard and some of my stuff is really being active. We've got to somehow get people back to that. Blake, I wouldn't be me <laughs> if I didn't say, <laughs> so I'm going to say it, that Justice Scalia did more harm to this issue than any judge or justice, certainly of my lifetime. And not only do I think that, but I think Oren Chemerinsky wrote an excellent piece about this and, and about I, the rhetoric that Scalia, Scalia admitted he was writing for law students and he admitted he wanted them to read his opinions. So that's why he made them so biting and sharp and personal that I don't care if Justice Ginsburg, I love Justice Ginsburg, she's an American hero, but I think she had a blind spot about that and it was, and, and it caused some harm. So, so, and part of that, I won't argue against that, but she had this uncanny knack of compartmentalizing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. various phases of her relationship. So, you know, I'm not judging that. I'm not judging. I'm that. not either. I'm not. Yeah. Either. And, and, and to be to be honest with you, that's a to me, that's not to be criticized. I think you right. for someone to be able to do that is amazing because it is amazing because at least there is some room there to have engagement with that person so that you can possibly find middle ground, possibly. I agree, Blake, this has been so much fun. I so appreciate you doing this. I was going to ask you about media and stuff. We went I know, to I was for, but, I, but I got too wordy and I didn't give you enough <laughs> no, you didn't. no, you didn't, you didn't. I didn't handle the questions well, but I really appreciate you doing this. I, I, I miss seeing you in person at SEALs and oh, other places. Um, that time will come again, I hope. Um, I, I, it would be my pleasure. And, and thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, my friend, and best wishes to you and all of your colleagues, and let's stay in touch. We will, thank you so much. Okay.